As I mentioned, welcome. We're glad that you're here this morning. We've been studying our way through the Gospel of Mark and have come to the last passage really in chapter 6, the Gospel of Mark. It's important to remember a couple of things. Uh, The intro that I have is, is not so much what we have been looking at. I suppose you could go back and look that up, uh, look over the first five chapters of Mark or five and three quarters chapters as we've come to the end. But it's important that we remember why Mark is writing the gospel that he's writing. And there's really, it kind of comes down to two reasons. The first reason is, is that Mark is connecting all of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the historical and the poetic books. He's, he's connecting all of that All of that to the New Testament, in a sense. Mark first records these words, and it comes up in the first chapter. There's a phrase in there that that reiterates or or basically explains the why why I wrote that down the way I did, or why that I brought it away across the way I did. He records the first words of Jesus to be this in Mark one fourteen and fifteen. He says, "Now after John was put in prison, little context, Jesus came to Galilee preaching." the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, so he records Jesus' very first words in Mark 1, the time is fulfilled. That's the phrase I wanted to camp on a little bit for a second. The time is fulfilled. That's the connection point by which uh, John Mark, uh, Peter's protege, is connecting all of the Old Testament. The time is fulfilled. What time is he talking about? He's talking about all, everything that the Old Testament pointed to as far as the Messiah. He's, point, he's, he's connecting that to now this time that he's writing in. He's, he's connecting it all to one person. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was Jesus' first words in the gospel of Mark. So there's a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Regardless of what anybody else says, you can't unconnect those two pieces. You cannot unconnect them. They're eternally married together. All of the Word of God is for our benefit. The second reason is is that Mark records all these events so that we get a full understanding then and a picture of who Jesus is. That's why he was writing this down. So that we get a full picture of who Jesus is. The Bible was never, I can't emphasize this point enough, if you don't get anything else, make sure you get this. The Bible was never intended to be a self-help guide. That's not the intention of the Scriptures. I'm not saying, and so I want to make sure you understand this real clear. I'm not saying that from time to time you can't go in and look something up and get some help. That's not what I'm saying. But if all we see the Bible as, if all that we promote this as is a self-help guide to make you better, to make you, you a better version of you, we've missed the point. This then just becomes one of millions of books in that category. And so people just pick, a, pick whoever they want to listen to. This is not intended primarily as a self-help guide. As if somehow you or I are the centerpiece who needs a little adjustment from time to time. That's not the intention of the Bible. The Bible is the story of a loving creator who sent his son, Jesus, on a rescue mission to redeem that which was lost, that which has a fatal flaw, that is you and I. 
you and I are born with a sin nature, with a, I'm going to use the words, a fatal flaw. We have a fatal flaw. And the Bible then is really a story of how God redeems His people from that fatal flaw. That's where the storyline of the Bible really takes off. Genesis chapter 3, the results of the conflict between man and Satan, Adam and Eve's fall to temptation as Satan duped them into disobeying God's commands. Uh, But there's the promised one which was to come and crush the deceiver, one who will deal with that fatal flaw that we have, which is sin. And I just wanted to read one verse out of Genesis 3.15 that points that out. And God is judging Satan. And he says this in 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed with a small s, and her seed with a big S. That seed with the big S is a reference to the coming Messiah. That's where it all starts. That's where the storyline of what I've just laid out, that's, it doesn't start there necessarily, but that's where it takes a turn into where God's plan is then laid out through the rest of the pages of Scripture. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Other versions say crush. I actually like that better. For the sake of continuity, I Stay with the, New Test- or with the New King James. That phrase comes out real clear in the epistle to the Colossians. In Colossians 2, 14 and 15, it says, Paul says to them, he says, And you being dead in your trespasses, that's the fatal flaw condition that we're in, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him. That's God's solution to your fatal flaw, to my fatal flaw. He makes people alive together with Him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that is against us, which was contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's Jesus' solution to your fatal flaw. That's, that's the message that we have. That's why I said several weeks ago, you, you don't have to create a message. You just have to give a message to people. And the message is, is that Jesus is the one that comes to deal with your fatal flaw, with my fatal flaw. And he takes our fatal flaw, sin, and he nails it to the cross, Colossians says. And then here's how it happens. Here's the crushing of the head, verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That's the point of defeat. Why am I bringing all this out as an intro into today's message? For one reason, and that is this, it's really easy to get into the habit of seeing ourselves as the centerpiece of the story. Uh, there's a danger out there that we, that we as believers, that, that Christians would read the Bible and we would read it with the filter that it's really all about us. It's not about us. It ain't about you, boo. Right? As Joby Martin say, it ain't about you. The storyline of the Bible is not about you. The storyline of the Bible is about Christ. 
And it's easy then to read, if we're in the wrong mindset, it's easy to read the gospel, these gospel passages that we've been going through and come to really what I would consider a cheap conclusion. And this cheap conclusion is, is that Jesus is here to heal me. I'm not saying that won't happen. We just prayed that God would heal Elliot. Amen? But the reality is, is that if we get in this thing that it's all about us, that Jesus is here to heal me, all caps on the me. Jesus is here to feed me, all caps on the me. Or Jesus is, is here to speak to the storms of my life as if it's all about my life. That's not the right way to go about it. As much as we want it to be, it's not about us, it's about Christ. And everything that the Bible authors record circles around this central truth that it's all about Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points to the coming of the Messiah. The Gospels are on full display, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels are on full display of, of this is, this is the reveal. This is the reveal of the Messiah. And then the epistles is how do we live in light of who Jesus is? How do we live in light of who Jesus is? How do we live by the Spirit as Christ followers? If you're a Christ follower, you get the Holy Spirit when you're saved. How do we live in light of all of that? How do we live by the Spirit as we follow Christ? And so they kind of look backwards in that sense. With us all firmly established, now let's get to the Gospel of Mark for our last two passages in chapter 6. If you're there already, uh, turn to Mark 6. We'll start in verse 45 and read to the end of the chapter. Mark records this. He says, And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. Well, he sent, his, sent the multitude away. And we had sent, when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he walked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gesenaret, and anchored there, and when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through the whole, country, whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered, into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Let's start back over at the beginning of that passage, verse 45. Immediately, it says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Uh, last week, we looked at the passage just prior to this where Jesus fed the, the 5,000, but we realize that Mark records that's 5,000 men, which we estimate, most scholars estimate closer to 15,000 people in total were fed. 
And now immediately, Jesus has a change of plans. He's working quickly. And my question is, is what's the rush? As I was studying this through, I thought, why, why insert that there? Like, what's, what's the push? He just had this huge meal. Uh, he had set the people down on the, the grassy uh, seaside there of the Sea of Galilee. And now, immediately after everybody's eaten and they gathered up the extra parts of fish and bread, immediately they got to take off. What's the rush? If you go to the Gospel of Mark chapter 6, that's where we fill in the blanks to that question. John chapter 6 verse 14 says this, Then those, who were, <clears throat> then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. John gives us a little different perspective, but he fills in the blanks of why Jesus was in such a rush. Now, there's two pieces to this. The people were both right and they were wrong. The people were both right and wrong. The people that had just been fed, uh, the people that had, that had just, uh, you know, saw this thing happen, realizing perhaps as word was spread that, hey, this whole thing, this whole meal, this whole feast started with just you know, what a small boy could carry in a paper bag. They come across then as, hey, this is the prophet. They were right in their proclamation. They called Jesus the prophet. The way Jesus miraculously provided the bread and the fish for the multitude proved that he was the prophet that Moses had spoke about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. But they were wrong in the application. They were right in the proclamation, but they were wrong in the application. They were right in starting to discover who he was, but they were wrong in what they were going to then do with it. They were wrong in the application that they wanted to force Jesus to overthrow the Romans. They wanted to make him king, which was a political title. It was a political title. The crowd was willing to support Jesus because they wanted to use him. They wanted to use him to throw off their oppressors. It was not primarily why Jesus came the first go-around. It will be the reason he comes the second go-around. They wanted to use him to throw off the Roman oppression, either directly in Judea or indirectly through Herod Antipas in Galilee. That was their take. Now what's interesting, this is the second time that the word records uh, second time in Jesus' ministry where we see it recorded that he has an opportunity to rule uh, and he turns it down. We remember what the first time is. It's not in the Gospel of Mark so much. But when Satan tempts him, when Satan comes to him and he spends time in the wilderness fasting and praying and then he's tempted by the enemy, the first go-around is that occasion. And Satan promises that all of the kingdoms can be yours if you'll simply bow down to me. That was the first occasion where they, there was an opportunity to rule and reign. The second, of course, is after this occasion, after feeding the people. And Jesus knows their intentions, and he avoids his, the scheme of man. The first time, he avoids the scheme of the enemy. And this time, he avoids the scheme of men to make him, to take him by force and make him king. Rather, 
Rather, the word records for us then in Mark chapter 6, 45 and 46, it records this, a clear picture of Jesus being principled in prayer. Jesus is principled in prayer. He sends the crowds away. He sends the disciples away. And then he gets away to pray. There's something to be said, really, uh, for getting away in a time, uh, just getting away by yourself, going for a walk, uh, getting in a room by yourself, no distractions, no devices. Yes, I said that. I was the first one to say it. No devices. In fact, this really bothers me. I never have my cell phone when I'm preaching. I usually leave it on my desk. But I'll give it to Tammy because if that thing buzzes, I'll be the most distracted. There's something to be said, though, for the solitude of prayer. To get away and just spend time. Three times that Jesus specifically got away. Once before calling his disciples in Mark 1. After he fed the 5,000 here in chapter 6. And the third time is in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. All three situations were this. They were really stressful. All three situations, you, you think about the time just before his ministry gets going, and he spends time with the Father. Of course, he'd just been, you know, 40 days in the wilderness, temptation, all that goes with all of that, prayer and fasting, being tempted. Then, boom, who does God have for him as disciples? It can be stressful. It can be a crossroad of crisis after feeding five, closer to 15,000 people. How would, you know, you've put yourself, I'll give you liberty just to do this. You've put yourself in that seat. You've got 15,000 hungry people. I mean, 15,000 people, that's going to fill up, you know, three football fields full of people, maybe more. What do you do? It's stressful. And then, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, obviously stressful. But Jesus resisted the political pressure of leadership by getting away to pray. He resisted the temptations. He dealt with all of that by getting away and just spending time with his heavenly Father. Now Mark goes on to say in verse 47, Now when evening had come, the boat was in the middle of the sea. So here's Jesus away by himself in prayer. When the evening had came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land, then he saw them straining, I have that underlined in my notes, he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. I was thinking as I was preparing this, is that this is the second time that, that uh, the disciples have been in this kind of a jam. A few chapters before, we see where uh, Jesus is sound asleep in the boat, taking a real nice nap, resting, and uh, all of a sudden, the winds, the waves, the rain comes on them. The boat's sinking. They're bailing out water. They're afraid for their lives. And uh, they wake Jesus up. He calms the storm. It's the second time where we see this disciples in troubled water. It's good to footnote, though, that both times they were doing what Jesus had commanded them to do. They were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do in both situations. So they were, in a sense, or in reality, they were in the middle of God's will, in the middle of storms. They were right there where God wants them to be, doing exactly what God wanted them to do, all the while 
Now they find themselves, and this is the second occasion in just a few chapters, where they're afraid for their lives. The winds and the waves were against him. The word strained there, the reason why I underlined it is it often means this. It's often translated tormented. So, you can draw some conclusions. You can be doing exactly what God wants you to do, be facing an unreal situation, unexpected situation, be in the middle of a storm. You can be tormented and be in God's will. They just had their hands to the, to the oars. They're just, they're just, they're just going to keep on plowing forward. It made me think of the question... How would you rank your own pain tolerance in ministry? It's a good thing for all of us to probably analyze. Like, like how, how, much does, how much pushback, how much wind, uh, how much of the winds of adversity does it take for you to just say, I'm done with this? This is just too much. A little, a lot. I mean, you can only judge for yourselves. These guys were right in the thick of it, not giving up, in either situation, doing exactly what they'd called to do. How much adversity can you take? I'm probably a little on the critical side on this from the standpoint that I think that in the days that we live in, we've, we've been so spoiled in recent generations that our pain tolerance and our adversity tolerance is pretty low as a church. That's my take. I'm not going to put a number on it, but I'm going to just say by looking at the way things go down, and, and, and I've been in you know place of leadership now for a long time. I've struggled with this myself. I'll be honest about that. But I think, how much adversity can you take? I ask that question, how much adversity can I take? How much adversity can I take? And I'm not saying that there's some big issue right now that we're in the middle of. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that from time to time, we all face these types of storms. From time to time, we all find ourselves on the road, on the oars, and getting nowhere in life, and especially in ministry. And so how easy it is then to just let go. The disciples were doing God's work and being tormented in the process. The winds and the waves beating against the boat. And these guys weren't just average dudes. They were... I mean, they were average dudes in the sense that they were just average guys. But these guys, they were, they were seasoned fishermen. A couple of them anyway. Three or four of them were seasoned fishermen. They knew exactly what to do in these situations. Still, they were not making any headway. And then at about 3 a.m., here comes Jesus just kind of strolling along. He's just out for an evening hike. About the fourth watch of the night, that's 3 a.m., verse 48 says, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed he was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. Would we be in any different state of mind? I don't think so. I don't think so. There's really a fascinating connection here between Mark 6 and the book of Job, chapter 9. And in Job 9, Job is responding to Bildad one of his supposed friends, and in verse 5 and 6, uh, 
that if Job would, and Bildad had, had, had basically was speaking, there was these back and forth conversations between Job and his friends uh, about Job's situation. That's kind of that uh, Bildad's plea for Job, uh, that if Job would just repent of his sins, that God then is obligated to bless Job. That's the essence of the plea. And Job's response is this, and it's also, I say, prophetic. But here's Job's response then in verse 6. He says, in response to Bildad, he says, He shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun, and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. Verse 8 is a good one to underline. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. That's a prophetic statement that Job probably didn't even know was prophetic. He made the bear, Orion, Pleiades. Those are star constellations. And the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. And here's another prophetic statement. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? Jesus was not obligated. I'll say this real straightforwardly. He was not obligated to walk out and speak to the storm. He, had no, he, had, he, he did not go out there out of a sense of obligation to his guys. He went out there out of a sense of compassion. It wasn't obligation. He went out there to insert some motivation. If it were obligation, Jesus could have spoke from the storm right where he stood. He didn't have to go out on the water. But if you're going to motivate someone, it's best to be in the trenches with them. It's best to be in the trenches with them. We have a a slogan I picked up from one of the guys I used to coach with uh, that he himself had gone through Ranger, uh, Army Ranger, whatever it's called, uh, training, I guess you would call it. And uh, we insert this slogan from time to time, and that is this, embrace the suck. Now, you just heard me say the word suck in church, and if that offends you, talk to David. <laughs> but we say in football, oftentimes, it's such a grinding sport that, that you just need to, and I just, I'll pull a kid alongside uh, many times, just say, hey, you need to embrace the suck. Whatever sucks today... Just embrace it, because if you don't embrace it, it'll eat you. It'll, it'll, it'll take you down. It'll ruin your whole day, maybe your whole week. It'll ruin your game. See, we start in August. <laughs> Anybody that's been here in August knows that we, football practice starts at triple digits. Mid-August. It's usually over 100 degrees. And then we end in November. We practiced the last month and a half of this last season in what? Three inches of snow most days. Ice and snow, wasn't it, Silas? Crunching around out there, everybody trying to twist an ankle on the ice and everything. So you're going to be from one extreme to the other. And if you don't, as, as a football player, but I think this is applicable as Christians too, if you don't embrace the suck, the things that are horrible, the things that are uh, ad, uh, you know, adversary to your desires, the things that you can't control, if you don't embrace them in that, you're not going to succeed. It's not going to go well. And I think the disciples did a great job of kind of just being in that arena of what was going on. They just kept their hands to the the oars. They just kept going. 
They just keep going. We have a group that texts us around, and, 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 and you heard Daniel's testimony this last Sunday if you were here. You know? And so we're encouraging the, the Davises, keep pressing forward. Keep fighting. Keep swinging. Don't give in to the enemy's temptation to give up. Don't give in. Just keep pressing forward. See, Jesus went out there to motivate them, not to criticize them. We have no hint of that here in this chapter. He didn't, he didn't go out to, to belittle them. He went out there to motivate them. He spoke to the wind. He first watched them strain, and then he spoke to the wind. He really watched his guys take on these adverse conditions. So what was his motivational speech? Look there, it says, he says this, strolling along, on top of the water, let's be clear about this, like there's all kinds of commentaries you can go out. You can Google this till your, till your, you know, your eyes fall out of your head. There's all kinds of commentators that are out there that will make excuses for what we read about it last week. Well, he really, you know, he really didn't feed that many people, or they had some, you know, everybody had a little bit, and they just added a little more. Uh, there's all types of excuses that people want to take away from the miracle of what happened last week and. This miracle here, oh, well, the boat was really, you know, next to a sandbar, and so Jesus kind of walked down that sandbar, but there was just like two inches of water on top of the sand, so it looked like he was walking on the water, but he really wasn't. I mean, there's, you can find all that, just ignore all of that garbage. I mean, honestly, what a pathetic uh, set of excuses for the Creator, for the, the very person that spoke the universe into existence, and all of a sudden now, you know, well, he can't really walk on water. I mean, come on. He walked on water. It wasn't a big deal to him. It was a big deal to everybody else. And he gets out there and he says, hey, guys, be of good cheer, it is I. It is I. That's, that, that, that statement right there where he says, it is I, that's equivalent to the I am statements that we find in the book of John, where Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am, I am. This is the same exact idea, the same exact concept. It is I am. Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them. And the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled. The disciples were in amazement. They were in amazement, and a little too sense from my brain is not because they, the wind had died down, or the fact that they saw Jesus walking on the water, which I'm sure was both things were amazing in and of themselves. But the real amazement is what Paul or what Mark mentions next. The real amazement was coming to grips with really how little faith they, they really had. That's why he says in verse 52, for they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. In light of the glory and the greatness of Jesus, the disciples begin to understand how hard their hearts really were about feeding so many people. They started to realize, and I mentioned this that last week, that, that their comments really come from a, a, plate of, a place of doubt and sarcasm. 
you know, and oh man, how we, you know, how are we going to feed? You need to send them away. You know, they had their own plan. Jesus had a plan. And in light of what had just happened, and then now out on the water, their amazement was as much in their own hard-heartedness, the Word says, than it was in the two miracles that they had now just witnessed. They were coming to grips with their own areas of unbelief. Their own insecurities were really being flushed out. And they thought they had the same faith as the rest of their countrymen and the traditions of Israel, just to realize that Jesus was calling them really to so much more. And I'm here to say this, that Jesus is here to call us to so much more too. That it's not just status quo. That it's not just a, a, a weekly, you know, uh, series of events and, and uh, activities. That's not what he calls us to. He calls us to faith in himself. He calls us to trust in himself. He calls us to rely on him in everything. One little piece of irony here is Peter is the main contributor to the Gospel of Mark. As I mentioned earlier, Mark, John Mark was Peter's protege and and uh, scholars believe that, that John Mark sat and wrote down, as Peter had kind of narrated to him, wrote down all of these experiences. And, and you really see Peter's disposition, his personality come in, because the whole book of Mark is fast-paced, you know, moving from one thing to the next, and, and uh, kind of Peter's style. But in Mark's account of Jesus walking on the water, there's no mention of Peter getting out of the boat and walking to Jesus. You ever thought about that? The Gospel of Matthew gives us all these fun details. Matthew 14, verse 28 through 33 reads, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, same event, same time frame, out on the water, getting pushed around by the wind, and Peter stands up and he says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to, <clears throat> come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they had gotten into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. I'm sure this is probably one of a few stories that Peter probably chose not to pass along. <laughs> like if you put yourself in Peter's head, yeah, hey, that wasn't one of my finer moments. That was not one of my finer moments, Mark. Just, we'll just leave that. Matthew's already wrote it down. We'll just go with his version. chapter concludes with a huge upswell of Jesus' healing ministry, and people coming from all over just to get a glimpse, just to getting a touch of his clothes. The word says there at the end of the chapter, as many as touched him were made well. With this description of the healing ministry of Jesus, Mark concludes a brief section where we see the power of Jesus over the laws of nature. That's part of the reason I get frustrated with 
a lot of these commentaries that are out there because they try to make excuses for the fact that Jesus can't or won't or didn't exercise authority over the laws of nature. He has every conceivable right to. Normally, 5,000 are not fed by such a small lunch. Normally, men don't walk on water. Normally, the sick are not instantly healed. None of this is normal, except, except by the power of God. If there's one thing that will help Elliot in this journey that he's on, is the power of God. Like, that's the one thing as you guys leave here and as you guys uh, spend your time in prayer this week and in the coming weeks for little Elliot, that's like the one point that I would encourage you. Lord, by your power and in your way and your timing, work in this situation. See, it's only the power of God that makes these things possible. And how do we apply then what we've been looking at here, even going back a couple messages, how do we draw some practical application from really all these supernatural events, which we have been just going through week after week after week. There's at least one, sometimes two, three, or many. Uh, how do we draw some practical application then from these supernatural events? One, one we're not the centerpiece of the story. If we insert ourselves as the centerpiece of the story, then something doesn't happen that we want to happen. We walk away in disillusionment. We walk away discouraged. Jesus is the center of the story. It's not about what storm or what disease or what demon or what hunger that we're facing. The center of each story is Jesus redeeming each and every person that has a fatal flaw. That's what he was demonstrating his glory for. So that these guys would start to realize who he really was. Two, two is our response to adversity. Our response to adversity demonstrates what or who we truly rely on. Whatever we, whatever we really rely on, that's really our God. Can we be honest about that? Like, if, if just coming to church is just checking a blank, or if just reading your Bible is just checking a blank, or if even just praying is just checking a, checking a square in life, and the reality is, is that what I really rely upon is my 401k, what I really rely upon is my, is my you know, job, and I, and I never miss, and I'm always early, and I always leave late, and I worship the work because I'm a workaholic, if what I really, really, really rely on is just listening to that one person, if I really rely upon just myself, like I'm just going to knuckle down, I'm just going to make this life work and, and get out of the way, you know, if you're in my way, I'm going to run you over. If what I really, really, really rely upon is all the coping mechanisms that are out there, you pick your flavor of the rainbow, those things are then God. And we don't really find out what those things are until we're in an adverse situation. We really don't. That's, what, that's why God allowed these guys to go through these storms. So it would reveal that He was God. Matthew records that the disciples were worshiping Jesus 
and saying, truly you are the Son of God. That's their conclusion. That's their statement. They started to not worship all this other stuff, freedom from Rome and, and oppression and, and you know, fighting the man or the system or whatever was out there. They started, this is where they really start to hone in on who Jesus is, truly the Son of God. And they were learning to be dependent on Jesus for everything, including their lives. The third application is knowing the presence of the Lord. The people knew that when Jesus was present, they knew they had to spread the word. That's that last section that we had read through, people going all over, bringing their sick. They knew that, that where Jesus was, that's where they needed to be. They knew that, that their sick friend or, or child or whatever the case was, that wherever Jesus was, we got to get this person from A to B because Jesus is at B and that we need to be in his presence. This person needs to be in his presence. So they knew the presence of the Lord was important. So it's not just about hanging out at church. Not that that's a bad thing. Church is awesome. We want you here all the time. But it's more about letting Jesus deal with our innermost issues. That type of in the presence of the Lord. And Jesus wants to do for you what he did for the disciples. Not necessarily speak to a storm on the outside, but speak to the storms on the inside, the hard hearts. That's their point of amazement, and really that's where Jesus really augurs in. That's where he works from as a starting point. I say to you parents all the time, pattern your parenting after God. How does God parent his people? From the inside out. Because if you pattern your parenting after uh, working from the outside in, I guarantee you'll never get to the heart. It'll just be about you know, behavior management. And that doesn't work. Because behaviors are an outflow of the heart. You've got to start from the inside out. And Jesus wants to do that for you just as much as he did for his disciples. He wants to deal with our own areas of hard-heartedness. The sooner that we embrace <laughs> that type of action in our life, and I want to stop and just insert into my notes, this is happening all over the place. It's happening here at Addy. It's happening in other churches. I'm hearing reports back where, you know, people are, are really in a, a full surrender, if you will. I, I hate to use, you know, cliche phrases. But God is addressing people's issues, and rather than running away, they're stopping and saying, all right, I surrender. I give up. It's awesome to witness. It's awesome to be uh, a part of it or even just to see it from some sort of a distance. The sooner that we embrace this type of action, this type of surrender, the sooner we will be free from the fears that are on the outside. The sooner that we let God transform our hearts, the sooner we will be free from the fear of all the things that scare us on the outside, all the things that think that's going to kill us on the outside. Because here's the truth, ladies and gentlemen, here's the truth, family, that when you're a Christ follower... <laughs> You're indestructible. Now, that doesn't mean that you go out and cross the street without looking. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that nobody can touch you. Nobody can touch the real you. Not the flesh. I'm not talking The flesh can be touched. The flesh can be persecuted. The, the, the flesh can be destroyed. 
they, they can do whatever, you know, shove hot bamboo up into your fingernails, torture you all they want to. I'm, hopefully nobody's going to be tortured. Anybody been tortured this week? I don't want to trigger anybody with torture. But the reality is, is that they can touch the flesh, but they can't touch the you because the you inside of you is in Christ. That's what makes you indestructible. That's what makes you an eternal being. The storms on the outside definitely view differently when the storm on the inside is brought right. David, will you come on up and lead us in communion? David's going to lead us in a time of communion. The worship team can come on up. We'll close this service. I'll be gone for a couple of weeks, and uh, so three weeks from now, we'll get back into the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Back studying more of what Jesus is doing and, and more of his ministry. I would encourage all of us uh, to be here. Uh, Ramon will be here this next week to preach and, and to come and, and worship next week. Uh, church isn't about me, right? Church is not about whoever's up front preaching. Church is about coming and giving God glory, praise, and honor. Worship Him in song. Worship Him with your finances and learning together. Amen? Amen, David.